How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're discussing a new means of personal mobility. A few decades ago, if you didn't have a car and there wasn't a bus nearby, you might have had to stick your thumb out on the side of the road. Today you can employ your fingers by opening a smartphone app and finding a ride across town or across the country. If you want to drive, you can do that too in a car owned by a company or a neighbor. Over the next hour, we'll discuss the transportation piece of the sharing economy with our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. We're pleased to have with us four people who are at the forefront of these innovations. Rick Hutchinson is CEO of City Car Share. Sunil Paul is CEO of Sidecar, a ride-sharing company in San Francisco and a handful of other cities. We also have with us Susan Shaheen, co-director of the Transportation and Sustainability Research Center at UC Berkeley. And we also have Kristen Svercek, the head of uh, public policy at Lyft and Zimride. Please welcome them to Climate One. I'd like to start uh, briefly by asking you how you kind of got into this part of the sharing economy and, and car sharing. And Susan Shaheen, you've been doing this a very long time. Tell us briefly uh, how you got into uh, this new area quite some time ago. Mm-hmm. So I've been uh, researching car sharing and shared use vehicle systems for about 17 years, which is, seems like a really long time. And I thought it made tremendous sense after I saw a presentation about car sharing systems uh, by Michael Glotch Richter, who came over from the city of Bremen on a German Marshall Fellowship. He lectured at University of California, Davis. I heard his lecture, and I said, aha, this is my dissertation topic. And I was challenged by my dissertation committee, who said, there is no way Americans will give up their cars. And I thought there might be a chance, and I never looked back. <laughs> so you wanted to prove your dissertation committee wrong. Okay. Uh, yes. Sunil <laughs> uh, Paul, you were an investor, and then you had a previous incarnation. Uh, I believe it was, uh, was Spride. Was that um, was it another mm-hmm. uh, company? Uh, so tell us how you got into the sharing economy and the ride sharing. Well, actually, um, my story begins way back in 1997. Believe it or not, uh, I had just moved to San Francisco. Uh, me and my wife had one car between us. And one day, as I was waiting to be picked up, uh, I had a, a little epiphany. Um, but before that, I had a little idea, which was, I need to get another car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but the little epiphany was, someday, my phone's going to know where I am. And all these people driving by, all their phones are going to know where they are. And I started thinking, wow, someday we're going to rethink transportation around this idea. It, it led me to kind of work through those ideas. I got a patent in 2002. I ran into the founders of, of City Car Share. I'm like, oh, okay, here's another example of information technology, rethinking transportation. I um, was on the board of City Car Share for several years. Um, got involved in, uh, uh, taught Singularity University, the Get Around uh, students, uh, or the students of mine went and created uh, Get Around. Um, Spride is a company that we, we tried incubating and um, uh, decided not to pursue. 
Uh, also got a law passed here in California that mm-hmm. enables peer-to-peer car sharing, uh, AB 1871. Um, so my interest in this category has been around for a long time. I think that ride sharing, which is what Sidecar does, uh, is an opportunity to really expand this opportunity very, very rapidly and aggressively around the world. Excellent. And, uh, and Rick, let's ask you how you got into this space. You're a nonprofit. How did you get into this space of ride sharing, car sharing? Well, City Car Share was started by a couple of local activists back in the late 90s, and they actually put cars on the road here in 2001. So we're about 12 years old. Um, I, I'm a reformed banker, and uh, I uh, made my way out, out here, did a couple of startups, uh, and then uh, ran into people like Sunil, who uh, uh, were doing some pretty amazing things in uh, the space of the environmental space, but also uh, around innovation and technology. So uh, City Car Share had lost its um, executive director, and uh, after a little dance, decided to join in, uh, and the rest is history. It's been seven years. And we'll get into a little bit more about car sharing, ride sharing, et cetera, in this part of the sharing economy. Uh, Kristen Svercek, uh how did uh, you come to the, the space of ride sharing and car sharing? Yeah, so I initially was um, outside counsel to a number of the kind of high-flying collaborative consumption companies, um, TaskRabbit and Zimride being among them, um, also represented investors and in companies like Wheels, um, had started working with Zimride back in 2010. Uh, Zimride and Lyft are, are one and the same. Um, and grew closer and closer with the founders, uh, really saw the vision and what they were doing over the last couple of years. Uh, came on board full-time about three months ago um, to head up legal and public policy matters. Great. All right, so let's uh, get some of the basic terms here and sort of set the table. Uh, uh, Susan Shaheen, you've been studying this a long time. Can you kind of outline for us car sharing, ride sharing, some of the key terms, and then we can dive into uh, how they're changing the way people get around the world? Mm-hmm. So the definition of what we call classic car sharing is is Fairly simple. It's uh, the shared use of a we vehicle need to pull fleet. Your mic. We need to put oh. your mic on. Yeah. Ah, there okay. we go. Thanks. Uh, the shared use of a vehicle fleet uh, by a group of members. Uh, they frequently pay an annual fee, a monthly fee, and typically pay by uh, the hour and, in some cases, by mileage, like in the city car share case. Uh, there's a couple new flavors of car sharing uh, that you've heard mentioned, and uh, one is the peer-to-peer car sharing concept. And that's the idea of people putting their own personal vehicles into these car sharing fleets. And we were also seeing a new form uh, called One Way. And uh, companies like Car2Go are out there. Uh, that's a Daimler product. And BMW Drive Now is also operating here in the city. And that's a one-way model. So in Rick's model, which is a more classic car sharing model, uh, individuals go into and out of the same location. Uh, for their access to the vehicle. With one way, you actually can take the vehicle from one location to another. So there's a lot of tremendous innovation happening in the car sharing space right now. Uh, there's a lot of confusion about definitions and impacts, and it's causing some uh, flurry of activity here, at, actually in San Francisco. And in terms of ride sharing, uh, there's a couple different flavors of that starts with the most simple, which is a fam pool, so a family actually sharing a, a vehicle and uh, taking children to and from school, maybe uh, with neighbors. And it also moves into more of a classic carpooling situation where people <coughs> are sharing a vehicle uh, that they carpool in. 
for work trips or more regular trips. There's longer distance carpooling trips. And what we're starting to see a tremendous amount of uh, innovation in, that, which is represented by uh, Sidecar and Lyft, my colleagues here, is this idea of real-time ride-sharing. So very dynamic, very um, instant. So, so what we're seeing, in my opinion, is the growth and development of the shared-use mobility space. And we don't exactly know how it's going to shake out. We've got a lot of work ahead, particularly in the public policy arena. So the concepts have been around a long time. Taxis, super shuttle, right? I mean, that's sort of, you go into the airport, share in a van, that sort of thing. So why is this all happening now? Is it the technology? Is it hard economic times that's, uh, that's uh, kind of making people more, more cost conscious? Sunil, what, what's sort of driving it? Um, I think there's three things that have changed. I actually looked at doing something like this uh, in, in 99 and decided not to for three reasons, all of which have changed. One, the technology was not ready. So the uh, smartphone platforms and having them be open, uh, there actually have been smartphones for a very long time. What's changed is that you can now have access to them without having to convince some big, huge company, the telecom carrier, to cooperate with you. You can publish it to the iTunes store, you can publish it to the Android store, and, and more are coming. Um, the second is that there's interest on the part of everyday people in new forms of transportation. I mean, I think this is the... We have more willingness to experiment with transportation right now than at any time since before World War II. Mm -hmm. Uh, Since that time, we pretty much accepted the automobile is the way it's going to be. It was the dominant technology of our era. Owning that automobile. Yeah, that's right. A car that you own. Um, And for the first time, because of this technology and because of things like climate change, things like energy security, there is a, a willingness to, to try new things, uh, and technology as well, things like um, electric vehicles, et cetera. And then the third thing is there's political will to try new things. For the same reasons climate change and energy security, there is a political uh, 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 will to, 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 to experiment. I mean, a quick anecdote. When I was uh, advocating for AB 1871, I was sent into a Republican's... Um, office because, uh, well, I should, probably shouldn't say publicly all the reasons why I, I was sent in. Um, but This was I, a law to change the way insurance is handled? In the, is that what yes, that was? Okay. Yes. And uh, the insurance companies could have easily killed this bill. I, I was told with a single phone call. And I was told also that these Republicans were, uh, you know, very amenable to the interests of, of the insurance companies. So I went in, I met with a staffer, and I was prepared for all my arguments. First words out of her mouth were, this is the wave of the future. The insurance companies need to figure it out and get on board. (laughs) To me, that was an indication of, okay, there is a a willingness to try new things in transportation. There is a willingness to um, accept that, look, the, the smartphone and information technology is the wave of the future. We are going to reorganize our entire society around this stuff, and transportation is just one of those things. We've already done it with media and shopping and all manner of things. Transportation is merely the next big category to, to, to be transformed. One, people, one person at, at Google Ventures said that in five years, your car will be your smart, smartphone. What, what does that mean? I mean, does that mean self-driving that means, cars? Does that mean more displays in the car? What, what, what does that mean? Uh, I know what it means for us. Uh, when we say that, we are talking about 
today when you want to do anything in modern life, whether you want to get food from the grocery store, you want to get to work and earn income, you want to go out on a date, everything is mediated by the automobile. And now everything's going to be mediated by your smartphone. You are going to be able to get the mobility you need to whether it's going grocery shopping or going out on a date or uh, getting to work. All of that is going to be possible through your smartphone. Fascinating. Um, let's talk about you know the size of this market. Do we know how big this market is right now? I mean, of personal mobility or car sharing. There's lots of companies. They're pretty small. Zipcar is one of the large ones. Do we know how how um, how big it is? Yes. <laughs> this is what I do. <laughs> uh, oh. I track these numbers um, for the industry. That's why you, Rick looked at me. <laughs> so, uh, interesting news. I have not shared this uh, with the public or the media yet. Uh, we just uh, did our data collection for January of 2013, and uh, North America has surpassed the million mark for car-sharing members. That includes Mexico, which is quite small, one program, Canada, and the U.S. The U.S. is around 800,000 members, or about 820,000 so members. So a million people are a member of, you said car or ride-sharing? Car-sharing. Car-sharing, okay. So so that's a zip car, city car share. Mm-hmm. And that's places. tremendous growth, right, from I. It has been growing. It has been growing. And really since we've started our tracking efforts in the late 90s, we have really never seen a decline. We've seen ongoing growth. Uh, I do think that this product, though, this service, could scale much bigger than what we see today. And one of the concerns I have is how do we look at this from a public policy standpoint to make it more possible to grow those numbers even bigger? You know, I'm very interested in the, the question of scalability now, where I used to be very interested in the question of impacts. How does this impact society and the environment? Now I'm also really moving into scale. Well, and, and, who, and who are those people? Who are those million people? Are they all people who live in urban areas, basically people under 40 who live in urban areas? Those tend to be some of the common demographics, and I think there's a chance and an opportunity to grow much beyond that through innovations in uh, the business models and changes in the overall approach. And I think everybody here on this panel represents that change. And then what are the, imp- what are the impacts of that change on existing businesses, uh, car companies? We talked a little bit about insurance companies. Are the car companies going to sell fewer cars? They Is could it- sell more cars if they put them into car-sharing systems. And so we see a number of automakers who are very interested in actually providing these services. As I mentioned, Daimler is putting smart vehicles out there, and BMW is putting uh, electric vehicles out there. So you, they could actually be a service provider as well as a vehicle provider, but you know, folks like Rick need to have cars in his fleet. So there's an opportunity for them to develop a new core competency in their business called mobility services, uh, ultimately, there may be an impact in the total size of vehicles available, but you know we're looking at a changing world where people are moving more into urban areas, so there's limited space. And we're also facing energy issues and climate change issues that are also going to impact the future. So I think the role of the automobiles is changing as well as the role of the car rental. Bill Ford, the chairman of Ford Motor Company, was here recently, uh, last year or so, perhaps a year before, and said car sharing is going to happen whether we like it or not, so we might as well 
uh, might as well be be part of it. So Neil Paul, I mean, is this going to? I mean, were you concerned about carbon? Uh, is this ultimately going to reduce vehicle miles traveled, the number of cars out there, or is this just going to be growing? People going to be moving around more because it's easier to do. Uh, well, that's an excellent question. I think that there is, um, you know, there is this uh, potential paradox of as you make things more efficient, people tend to use them more. Uh, I do think that in uh, in the case of what we're doing, uh, specifically with with ride sharing, there is an opportunity to reduce uh, emissions and reduce congestion, and it has to do with the the way that we do it. Uh, passengers must enter their destination, and drivers can see what that destination is. So we like to say the the good of the nation requires destination. And that is uh, basically conveying that if you really want, if you can actually make the ride shared, then you can have reductions in emissions, you can have reductions in congestion. But if you can't have that kind of sharing, then you're not going to get those benefits. So is this someone who's commuting from San Francisco to the East Bay? Or is this like a daily commute scenario? Is that what this, the, the, the sort of uh, typical use case is for someone who's going down the 101 and they want to get in the carpool lane and uh, that sort of thing? So it's, it's we've, got, we've got a number of different people. So we've created a platform that allows people to indicate, here's where I am, here's where I want to go, and for uh, drivers to be able to see that where that – uh, pickup point and destination is, and if that's a convenient trip for them, they'll they'll accept it. So there's a guy we have in our system um, named Nick, who works in uh, Mountain View. He lives in the city. He turns on the app in the morning. He looks for somebody going south. He picks them up, drops them off along the way, and continues on on his onto his uh, job. Uh, so that's one use case. There are other times when people are just turning it on to to get out of the house and, and give rides to people just because they like meeting people and it's a way to make a little extra money to offset their car costs. Uh, Kristen Strachek, is that also a motivation for, for Lyft, uh, which has those distinctive uh, um, banner, must, pink mustaches on the pink front? Pink yeah. car stashes. Is that car stashes, <laughs> is, that, is that what they're called? Is it the extra money that's uh, it's a big motivator? I think there's a number of motivators. Uh, one of them certainly is is the opportunity to make a little extra, as Sunil said, to offset your car costs. I think people also believe in the long-term vision of the company, which would be um, to have a net effect uh, in reducing vehicle miles traveled and uh, greenhouse gas and um, emission reduction as well. But how does that really work? So if I hop in Lyft uh, and that car might have otherwise been sitting in the garage. I might have taken a taxi. The taxi's still out there driving around. So it's possible that this could actually increase greenhouse gases. More cars buzzing around. Rather than let my car sit in the garage, I'm going to go drive it and make some money. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and this is actually something we've talked a lot uh, about with Susan um, in the past. Um, I believe uh, initially with car sharing, there was a similar problem uh, when you had these vehicles available to people who maybe otherwise did not have a vehicle available, um, you were initially putting more cars on the road. But in the long term, once you reached a critical mass, you were having an overall positive net effect. And, and that would be our long-term vision as well. Is that true? Is that what happened, Susan? Yeah. Yeah. A, a lot of times the early adopters of car sharing systems in a city are people who never had access to a car. So it's not surprising then to see an increase in vehicle miles traveled 
but where the real gain and opportunity is for reduction in vehicle miles traveled is to actually get people to sell cars or to postpone car purchases. And one of our recent studies, which included City Car Share as well as all of the major car sharing companies, revealed that car sh- one car sharing vehicle takes 9 to 13 vehicles off the road and actually causes people to sell 4 to 6 vehicles of that 9 to 13. This is where we see from the metrics the data having a net effect, where some people are actually from zero car households, but the total net effect is actually positive towards the environment. This recent study showed uh, approximately a 43% reduction in CO2 emissions as a result of those postponed as well as actual car purchases. Rick Hutchinson, you also have some data on city car share and its impact and what, what it displaces in terms of carbon and, and vehicles miles traveled. Right. So uh, in the Bay Area, there uh, we're basically ground central here for car sharing, ride sharing, peer-to-peer car sharing. There are more companies here in the Bay Area offering uh, services that allow people not to have to own a car um, or at least to get rid of a car. For city car share, we've been experiencing that for years. In fact, about two-thirds of our members uh, say that they either sold a car or delayed buying a car once they join us. Uh, a study done by Robert Severo back in the um, uh, early 2000s, uh, finished in 2006, is, is basically the the law. It's the only longitude, longitudinal mm-hmm. study that I know of, unless you know something else. Yep. Um, and it showed cars taken off the road. It showed that a greener ride, meaning greener cars, can have a material impact on reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. City Car Share last year, um, and this is based on the Severo report and on work that Susan Shaheen has done, as well as Nelson Nygaard. We uh, saved about 80 million um, pounds of CO2 emissions. Uh, Every day, uh, 80,000 fewer miles are driven on Bay Area roads due to City Car Share members. Um, you asked the question earlier about growth. There's been tremendous growth. When I joined in 2005, uh, I had number uh, 3,200, 3,205, actually. Uh, last year, uh, we issued number 40,000. So there's been tremendous growth in car sharing. Every single one of those members is likely to have gotten rid of a car, not buying a car, or is thinking about getting rid of another car. So therefore, you have... Uh, not only reduction in um, greenhouse gas emissions, but in all of the CO2 that is released in actually the production of those vehicles that would have been purchased. And you claim that your nonprofit car sharing service is actually greener than for-profit car sharing services. How? Well, I don't. I, I don't claim it. I'm using some study information that came out of a Susan Shaheen study that showed that uh, this is back in 2008. Mm-hmm. That showed that nonprofit car sharing organizations uh, do save more greenhouse gas emissions than for profits. Now, what's the reason for that? I think there's several reasons for it, and the main one from City Car Share's point of view is that we just have the greenest fleet in the industry. Forty-five uh, percent of our cars are hybrids, plug-in electric vehicles, or electric vehicles. Um, when we look at the uh, just based on EPA standards, that our fleet is about 35 to 40 percent more fuel and emission efficient than the standard car on the road today. I will say as a former city car share member that I drove around in smaller cars that I probably wouldn't buy those cars, but yeah, drive around in them. Uh, so Susan Shaheen, is that true that, that, uh, 
what for-profit companies don't want to buy the greenest cars because it doesn't pencil out. They're looking to maximize their profit. Is that what I would say? Is that the data showed that both for-profits and non-profits had a net negative effect of reducing CO2 emissions or a positive effect for the environment. And uh, we did see um, that they were, that this effect was higher for the the nonprofits. I have another hypothesis uh, in addition to the dynamics of the fleet. And Zipcar and other uh, organizations that are in the for-profit realm also have clean cars. Um, th- this is an explanatory variable, but I also think the pricing of how city car share prices has an impact because they actually do charge by mile. And I think that has an impact on the total number of miles driven by a city car share vehicle where that is contained more inside of the pricing of a for-profit company. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah, it costs more to go, go certain distances. Um, but let, let's ask Kristen Svercek that uh, for, for relay rides and some of these other models, uh, Lyft, where people are using their own car, they may not be the cleanest uh, new you know, hybrid, et cetera. They might be that, you know, just judging by some of the pink mustaches I've seen around town. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, is there an incentive to to be clean and green in the in the Lyft model? Um, I, you know, as as far as not with respect to the way that City Car Share is doing it, um, but I think that what's clean and green about it is that you have less single occupant vehicles on the road, so hopefully less vehicles total, um, more people using their vehicles in an efficient way. So even if you're not driving a Prius, um, you maybe are taking another car off the road. I read a statistic that 80% of the car seats, car seat miles in this country are empty, which kind of makes sense. You think about a 20% five-passenger car. Most cars out there have during rush hour have. So we're talking about a pretty big cultural change here uh, for all those people who are used to listening to NPR. We we love them uh, or uh, (laughs) uh, sports radio or other things uh, and picking up a stranger and like, do I really want to talk to you all the way to San Jose? Really? I mean, you know, I'm just curious in how this is working culturally to all of a sudden ride with strangers and make that kind of commitment. Mm -hmm. You know, it's uh, I think it's working remarkably well. Because I think there's this whole culture that uh, I'm old enough to remember Texas Chainsaw Massacre. (laughs) And there is uh, one of the things that surprised me about Sidecar is that we put all these safety measures into place and people have taken to it because the background check of the driver, the the photo of the driver, the rating systems, the, Mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, all of these uh, systems have have, I think, built confidence that this is a safe system, enough so that when we surveyed sidecar uh, users, 71% think that it's safer, they feel safer, uh, in a ride that they match through sidecar than in a taxi. So, and that's in, and we've only been around for within less than a year of, of offering this, this matching service. As someone who recently took my first thrilling ride in, in Uber, uh, which is <laughs> another company that's kind of a, a real-time dynamic, uh, basically displacing a taxi, I like the fact that I can see the guy's face 
before he picks me up, and then I have his information afterwards, I'm thinking that probably moderates that driver's, uh, and I get to check one or five stars. That has a moderating effect on that person's behavior, uh, yakking on the cell phone, driving kind of crazy. So there's, there, I think trust seems to be a big part of this. Confident use, use confidence. Mm-hmm. We'll say trust in terms of or accountability in both directions to, to making this work. We have this new model of trust that's now possible, and it's because of social media broadly. Right just the ability for feedback. Like, basically, there was very little accountability before. A casual carpool here in the Bay Area transports about 5,000 people a day with really no accountability for who that driver is. That's where you wait on line on the side of the road, car pulls up, you hop in, you don't know who they are, you're just hoping to, like, yeah. That's right, and it's uh, similar to slug lines in D.C. And, and casual carpool in San Diego. So we really took that model and said, gee, can we take that and make it possible to work across the entire Bay Area and around the entire country? Uh, and the answer is yes, it's working, and it's spreading very rapidly. And it's spreading rapidly. That's also uh, causing some resistance from established industries and regulators. So let's talk about uh, the yellow cabs and who's being disrupted by this innovation uh, get a, you want to have a conversation, get a cab driver to talk about Uber or some of these things, and you'll, you'll get an earful. Um, so let's talk about sort of the incumbent def- defending their territory, how that's playing out. Well, this is uh, – <laughs> it is a, 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 bottle, <laughs> a, a battle that happens a lot, which is the, the industries that um, see new innovation want to resist it, and they use every means possible that they can. Um, you know – I think another example of this is what happened with voice over IP. Things like uh, Skype offer this amazing service, amazing advantage for consumers, and the the telcos, you know, AT&T and all the rest, really resisted it. And they used organizations like the the, the PUC to help resist that change. Uh, I think a similar dynamic is at work right now, um, where we've got objections by, you know, the objections that are made against us and Lyft and Uber uh, don't come from the public. They come from, you know, people who have a lot to lose by having innovation happen in the marketplace. And that's been pricey for you. You've been fined, what, $20,000? I read one figure that's the regulatory issues in California have cost you half a million dollars fighting some of the fines. Yeah, the fines, the fines. So here's, I mean, just so to recap, um, the California regulators, PUC, have um, sent cease and desist notices to us, Uber, Lyft, and Tick and Go, uh, fined uh, three of us. And uh, while there are those fines uh, out there, to be honest, what's very expensive, and you know we haven't paid these fines, what's really expensive is simply engaging with regulators. I mean, we are a startup. But lawyers we are, are expensive. Lawyers. Just the, the, the bandwidth of, of mm-hmm. having to pay attention to it, that is the expensive part. And we are innovators. We are looking for new ways to make these systems better and uh, really transform transportation. And here's a, you know, we estimate about $500,000 that have gone towards these regulatory um, engagements. And what's their beef? That, that you're not regulated? That you're, what's the problem? Well, I think the, the, you what the PUC, do what you're doing? the PUC basically sent us a note saying that we should stop operating because we don't have a license for what they refer to as a charter party carrier, which is kind of a regulatory code thing for the same as a, a limo company. And, uh, you know, we sent a response saying, 
there's nothing to cease and desist. We don't have any cars. We don't have any drivers. I mean, we are an information provider. We provide matching uh, up of, of riders and, and drivers. And uh, so I think there's been a fundamental, this is a new medium, and this new medium needs new rules. That viewpoint is one that uh, I think regulators in the beginning don't understand. Uh, we've seen the same thing in Philadelphia, in Austin, and undoubtedly. In Austin, they're trying to make it illegal. In Philadelphia, they did a sting operation on your company. Yes. So in Philadelphia, uh, two weekend, uh, weekend before last, uh, there was a sting operation where um, it wasn't against, well, I guess, from their perspective, it was against our company, but they impounded the vehicles of three drivers. Uh, they fined each of them uh, $1,000. Um, sorry, one of them they found fined $2,000. Um, they sent us a, um, uh, fines as well. Um, in Austin, they've sent us a cease and desist, and the city council has made it possible for the, infor- the taxi uh, enforcers to, uh, to impound vehicles as well. Um, and so I think what happened in California is we went from an attitude of the regulators to, hey, you can't do that, we're going to shut you down, to, oh, okay, wait a minute, we get it. This is a new medium. We need new rules. Let's have a conversation about what this new medium is like, what the right rules should be for it, um, and how do we benefit California through this new this new capability? Um, and we, I mean, that's the approach we want. We want to talk to these folks. We're not knee-jerk libertarians. We're not saying there's no role for government. We just think that there needs to be a way to encourage innovation rather than thwart it. And Kristen Faircheck, you're company, I believe, uh, reached an agreement with regulators. Mm -hmm. So what was the deal there to get them off your back? Right, right. So um, similar to Sidecar, Lyft has a number of trust and safety components in place, including DMV record checks, background checks, rating system, et cetera. Um, And and the Public Utilities Commission's number one concern is, is really public safety. I think they're not as um, focused on the entrenched interests like the taxi cabs, they really care about protecting consumers. And so once we were able to show them the various things that we do to protect consumers, uh, we were able to come to a settlement agreement. And But you agreed to that, and that agreement was not acceptable to you? Um, uh, there is a, this agreement we're talking about is a, basically an agreement to stay the fines and the, and the mm-hmm. um, the cease and desist until the rulemaking process is done, at which point all the stuff could basically come back if the rulemaking goes against us. Um, we, you know, those conversations we've agreed to keep confidential, and so I'm not going to go into the details. Um, but I will say that we obviously have not agreed to what the PUC proposed. We have some sort of principled disagreements with with what they have so far, um, and we may end up signing it, but only after we get agreement on those principles. So where's this going? There's, this is an innovation is ahead of policy, as often is the case. There's some incumbent industries that are fighting to protect. Uh, Susan Shaheen, you know, where's this going to shake out? There'll be some new rules, these new industries, hopefully some jobs created in California, other places. Where, where's this going? I think we definitely have to work through these policy issues for the entire shared use mobility space. The folks in the ride-sharing space are hitting it first, but I think a lot of questions about liability, insurance, new insurance models, new ways of doing pricing, 
a lot of things need to be worked out. And those are all built around ownership, not these kind of access. communal right then, then, access. Yeah, right. they're not they're not based around principles of access. And so I think we really need to work across the industry. So there's many different players in this uh, besides car sharing and and uh, ride sharing. I mean, we've got public bike sharing in it. We have new models of fractional ownership that are being developed that fit into this space. So there's a range that could be represented, and collectively, I think they have a voice. But it's difficult when you're an entrepreneur trying to run a business and get it off the ground to work out all of these legal matters and to take them on. So I think we definitely need a new policy framework. We need a new dialogue. And I've seen a lot of promise in regulators wanting to have that dialogue, but it's this immediate reaction that I think is is really tough and is very difficult for the small companies because this could stomp out innovation. By the time rules get made. There's also, you mentioned, can I just add that uh, this is, we're seeing this not just in transportation, we're seeing it in, uh, with Airbnb's challenges in right. sharing. Um, it, it is across the board. Uh, sharing is not a crime. It is good for society. And we need to figure out a way to encourage sharing innovations, not thwart them. He has a hashtag. Is it what? The hashtag defending sharing? Defend sharing hashtag. Right. Um, uh, good access on Twitter on a lot of these things. Uh, sharing economy hashtag. Our, our handle is. Oh, uh, we should get people to sign our petition too. We've got a petition to help us with South by Southwest, which is coming up this weekend mm-hmm. in Austin. Uh, you know, this, the timing of these actions by Austin is really uh, unfortunate. Uh, we are planning on uh, mm. providing these shared rides in Austin for South by Southwest, and along come all these actions. So we would love support on our petition at change.org. Um, you just search on Sidecar, you'll see it. Uh, uh, liability and insurance was mentioned earlier. I want to reference quickly a, a case mm-hmm. of not a company up here, but Relay Ride uh, had a person, uh, quite a uh, – uh, a tragic case where uh, an MIT student and a Googler, uh, Liz Von T- uh, Jones, uh, leased out her, rented out her Honda. Uh, the driver was killed. Several people were seriously injured. Uh, there's a million-dollar insurance liability. It looks like that will be exceeded. Uh, she could be on the hook financially. This is quite a case of something that no one really thought would happen, but uh, lending out your car is different than Airbnb and, and sort of mm-hmm. leasing out your, mm-hmm. your couch, isn't she? Mm-hmm. Well, I would say this echoes right back to the public policy issue, right? Because Sneil talked about his work to develop peer-to-peer car-sharing legislation, which would help to protect consumers in a liability situation, as, as well as protect their rights to make money off of um, use and access to their car. And, you know, only two other states have adopted that legislation thus far. So in that particular state, Massachusetts, there was no protective legislation in place. So you can see, are these small companies expected to go state by state by state to develop legislation? It's going to be impossible for them to do that. So we need to elevate this to a national dialogue, if not a higher-level dialogue as well. And the liability issues, I think, need to be addressed. And if we're only using a vehicle or accessing a vehicle for an hour or for minutes, is the current ownership insurance model the proper model? Probably not. So I think we also need to really start to look at insurance vehicles and, you know, do we need new insurance approaches, new insurance products to help promote shared use? 
And will this be market-driven or regulatory-driven? Because in, in the case of that, that uh, relay ride case, the insurance companies are saying, hey, we've got different clients. They're on different sides protecting different interests. Uh, so it's hard to see the market really doing, doing this. It seems God like help us if the regulators are in charge of innovation. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine if the PUC ran Twitter? I mean... <laughs> Mm-hmm. 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 So, I nothing against the PUC people. They're all the market great will have to and sort it do out. their job, but the institution is not yeah. set mm-hmm. up to do that. That's not their job. Their job is to protect mm-hmm. public safety, mm-hmm. not to encourage innovation. I'm sorry, that's just not their charge. And there has to be a, a way to the, – the role of public policy, the, pol- the role of people is to encourage innovation. The role of our government is to in- encourage innovation. Uh, it has to happen through the marketplace, though. And you think insurance companies innovate? Yes. <coughs> yes. Yeah, they're going to have to. There's, um, there's in insurance, you've got the commercial side and you have the <clears throat> personal side, and they do not meet. They don't talk uh, the same language even sometimes. And when you have cars involved with different regulatory environments in different states, you you have a mess. And so, um, and right now, uh, as is typical of any business that's been relatively successful over a long period of time, you get inertia, and they're going to do everything they can to protect what works for them. Mm-hmm. And right now, it's not working for new mobility. It's not working for uh, as far as uh, promoting and helping innovative new ideas um, uh, get accomplished at a cost that is that is, is practical. In the peer-to-peer car sharing model right now, um, it's, it's a great model, but uh, one of the key issues that they have is that they, are, they cannot make any money with the insurance costs at the level that they're at. Um, I think Sunil can talk about this. I think when he penciled it out and we penciled it out years ago, we went, great idea. Is it scalable and will it ever make money? And it's not going to make money if insurance regulations, insurance companies don't get become more innovative and don't choose to uh, create a new product, quite frankly. It took a lot of uh, uh, work to get people to be able to take their health insurance different places, like mm-hmm. you're talking about taking your auto or mobility insurance mm-hmm. different places. That was mm-hmm. a long, hard I do out. think there's going to be innovation in insurance. You know, there's large companies that may be more resistant given their existing models and practices, but there's smaller insurance companies that may be more nimble and be able to see and pencil out um, the risk. I mean, car sharing, Rick, you can speak to this. I mean, tremendous history of wonderful safety, good driving records. So there's not a lot of accidents in the shared use space, at least with respect to public bike sharing and car sharing. I know this for a fact. So there's money to be made by the insurance industry by understanding that actuarial data, that risk data. If you're just joining us, we're talking about uh, car sharing at Climate One. Our guests are Susan Shaheen, co-director of the Transportation Sustainability Research Center at UC Berkeley, Kristen Svercheck at uh, Lyft and Zimride, Sunil Paul, CEO of Sidecar, and Rick Hutchinson, CEO of City Car Share. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, before we go to audience questions, I want to talk about how this is going to affect buildings and cities and the way that we build new spaces, accommodate growth. There's going to be uh, a lot of new people in the Bay Area in coming years. And if we build housing and parking one-to-one, uh, that has implications. Are we going to see situations where there's painted curbs where you get special parking places if you're driving a, a shared car or shared uh, shared ride? Are, so how is the land use and urban planning going to connect? 
connect with uh, mobility as a shared service. Well, one I take that that uh, San Francisco actually has been somewhat innovative in this area. Back in 2006, uh, the planning code was changed uh, so that now in San Francisco, any building, commercial or uh, residential that is built, is required to have car sharing if they're if they have above a certain amount of units. That kind of legislation has been is being studied and looked at uh, in other venues as well. Um, we did a pilot test. Uh, on on-street car-sharing parking last year with the city of San Francisco. Now, this is a very interesting uh, um, subject because what we're talking about is using the public right-of-way and the public good and making it available to private companies. So it shouldn't be taken lightly. The, the fact is that there are um, many benefits to allowing shared vehicles of any kind to be uh, parked in areas where um, we might have some equity issues, where car sharing or uh, car ownership is not financially uh, viable. And therefore, being able to have um, uh, on-street parking or parking that is um, somehow uh, either um, subsidized or permitted is going to help expand car sharing and I believe some of the other models greatly. In the Bay Area, parking is one of the key aspects that creates costs for all, mm-hmm. for almost every model, and it's very, very difficult to find in high-demand areas. Mm-hmm. Anyone else on that, how it's going to change the way we build cities and respond to growth? and incorporate? I think uh, the sharing models have a tremendous opportunity to reduce the infrastructure needs for cities. Mm-hmm. We think about it, t- it takes so much money. You know, it costs a million dollars a mile to build a sidewalk. <laughs> Not to mention a freeway. It is incredibly expensive to build these things in public infrastructure. And so having shared use, I mean, we already have HOV lanes, uh, having shared use of apartments uh, through an Airbnb-style uh, system, having shared use of roads through a sidecar kind of system, having shared use of, of uh, public infrastructure for, for parking spaces through a car sharing, like all of these things make our public dollars go further than they would otherwise. And I think it's fundamental to especially a money-constrained environment that we are living in for the foreseeable future. Sharing has to be part of the solution. But building developers don't like what they see as a government mandate. you got to put in sharing. Like It messes with their economics. Well, well that's not necessarily true mm-hmm. here. Uh, there are lots of developers who, who buy into this. Many developers... Uh, at least in the Bay Area, and I can speak best because we're a local community-based organization here, but many developers get this, and they look at sharing as a, an amenity for their projects. They'll look, uh, they, they, they see it as an opportunity also to build less parking. Parking costs thirty dollars to $40,000 per space. To build. So if you can not build those spaces and put in a few other units or even some open space, that makes a better project, and therefore many developers have, uh, quite frankly, are very supportive of what we're doing. We're talking about car sharing at Climate One. Uh, we'd like to invite your participation. Uh, don't be shy. Come on up here and come to this microphone. And uh, who's going to be the first brave soul? Again, if you're on this side, uh, we encourage you to come over to that side. And uh, the line starts with our uh, producer, uh, Jane Ann, who will invite you uh, up to... Um, invite your question. 
So while that's, that line is, uh, is forming, let's talk about the, the jobs impact. How many people, uh, we've talked a little bit about a little extra income, but are these companies significant uh, job creators, job drivers? Let's get a sense of uh, new jobs as well as sort of part-time incremental jobs. Um, so, you know, how many employees does well, Sidecar have? Uh, Sidecar itself has um, about 50 employees around the country, but uh, if you look at the kind of little extra income or uh, offsetting of vehicle costs, you know, we're closing in on a thousand people around the country. We heard a million members of car sharing services. Uh, Kristen, how about jobs? Our numbers are actually pretty similar to sidecars. Uh, I think we have about 40 to 45 full-time employees at Lyft now, um, and hundreds more in, uh, receiving incremental income because of being exactly. able to ride share. Exactly. Part of the part of the gig economy. Let's have our question. Hi, welcome. I'm wondering if any local developments have partnered with the car sharing service and actually marketed that as a benefit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, we, have a, we, we have several buildings in San Francisco and all, all, also over in the East Bay. There's a local developer who uh, named Patrick Kennedy uh, who has recently, you maybe have heard of these micro-unit developments that are going up, you know, uh, mm-hmm. super small housing. Super small yeah. housing. Uh, well, Patrick has been uh, a leader in that space, and uh, one of the things that he pitched to the city here is, I won't build any parking. I won't build any parking. We'll use car sharing, so we'll have these micro spaces where more people can use either as you know, pied-à-terres or for spe- specific housing needs. These and are housing that might fit in a parking space, that's right? True. So that's that's yeah. true, and, and we don't want people living in the car necessarily, but it right. could be bigger than some of those spaces, yeah. Okay, so it can be a selling point, still a niche. And uh, mm-hmm. Susan Shaheen, anything to add to that? No, I, I've, I've been tracking this for a long time, and I see developers really getting on board with this because they can make better use of that space and provide. But deeded parking is a selling point. When you go into a condo, the idea that that owner is like, well, man, what if there's not a place to, for me to park when I come home with my Christmas tree, whatever? Deeded parking is a selling point versus shared parking. Now this is one step further, right? Well, in, in many uh, cities nowadays and, uh, and locally here, uh, you have unbundled parking. So, therefore, a condo that is sold or a rental apartment must separate parking, and you mm-hmm. pay a separate amount for that. So if you, choose not, if you choose to go car-free, you do not have to pay for that spot or, to, uh, um, or, or even buy it. Uh, and, uh, at least in urban environments, that seems to be uh, more popular. And again, with sharing, uh, with, with sharing mobility services, that uh, whether you can um, use sidecar or lift and get a car immediately, or be a member of city car share and have cars for more common needs, uh, you don't need to have a car in the city. How about the impact on transit? Is this just taking people off buses, or is this ha- impacting transit in any significant way? People, would they take the take Muni if they didn't use city car share? Well, this is where model matters, and there are different models of uh, car sharing, ride sharing, and, um, uh, and peer-to-peer car sharing. Um, we know through studies that have been done that when people join city car share <coughs> that they decrease their driving by about 45%, how many miles they, they drive, and they increase their use of walking, biking, and public transportation by over 50%. Um, we've done studies with BART um, and the San Francisco MTA over the years to show that we are actually pushing more people onto public transit, uh, quite a bit actually. Um, uh, locally last year um, we had... Uh, more people taking um, 
BART across the bay to use a car share car at a BART station in one area than we had members using it who lived there. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense because the BART doesn't go everywhere. If there's a car share there waiting for you to get you that final mile or whatever, yeah. makes a lot of sense. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for a great panel, by the way, so far. Um, the social value of ride sharing, very impressive. Uh, the financial value to the companies in the space seems to be more of a question mark. So we talked about insurance liability for peer-to-peer sharing. Also, if you look at Zipcar's stock performance, it was quite underwhelming until they got bought by Avis Budget for an even more underwhelming price. In fact, it spawned several lawsuits. So my question really is, what can you tell us about how compelling this market is for the companies that are in it financially? And if we had this panel 10 years from now, are these companies still going to be here? Mm-hmm. Why, don't you, why don't you start with your banking background, and right, then I so will play in. <laughs> bear with me for a second, but... Um, we should, uh, before you start, yeah. uh, distinguish ride-sharing from car-sharing. Okay. So I think you asked about ride-sharing. Are you asking about ride-sharing? Zipcar was actually about car-sharing. Okay. So mostly about ride-sharing. So Rick Hutchinson right. from City Car Share. Well, for, as far as car-sharing is concerned, um, now we're a nonprofit, but we've made money for many years. And we take all that money, we put it back in the community through a low-income uh, product we have called Community Share. We, we, we developed the first wheelchair-accessible vans in the industry that are shared. We have uh, an EV program going on. We're going to initiate an electric bike program. That's where we take our profits. The point here is that we and several other transit-oriented car-sharing companies are making model, uh, are making money, and um, not a lot, but enough to create some social programs that we think are important and to help expand car-sharing. Mm-hmm. Ride-sharing, new model here, I think. Um, my opinion is that people like Sunil would not be in it if there wasn't um, <laughs> some money that was going to be made somewhere down the line as well as some social good that was produced. And yes. Sunil Paul, Google Ventures is, a, I think, investor in, yeah. in Sidecar, so they're, right. they're doing That's it right. for money too. So. That's right. So we, we've, raised, um, we've raised a venture round as well as a number of angel investors, Lightspeed and Google Ventures are, uh, are the two sort of um, institutional investors in it. And... Uh, this is my third company that I've started and, and run and uh, invested in many. And, um, uh, you know, the last company was very successful. Uh, I've made a lot of money uh, already. Uh, so I am a capitalist, so I certainly expect to make money on this company, and it's a, a big reason why I did this. But I, I did this, I'm doing this company not just because I think I can make money, but because I think I can make a big difference and I can make history. I sincerely believe that there's an opportunity to build a big company that fundamentally changes transportation um, and that 10 years from now we'll look back and say, wow, yeah, that, not just Sidecar, but other companies in this space ended up transforming the way we think about transportation in the same way that we look back on the early days of electronic commerce. And we say, wow, okay, Amazon, they weren't just selling books. And eBay, they, they weren't just handling collectibles and allowing people to trade collectibles. There's a whole bit of, eco- of, of commerce has changed because of those companies. So I think we're in a similar stage with transportation. I think that uh, the smartphone is going to unlock mobility in a different way. Um, it's not just your mobile phone. It's going to be your mobility phone. So you may never buy a car for that young child that you I, mentioned that I, when they grow I up and hit 16 like you and I wanted so bad. It's like may not happen. 
You know, the trend's already headed downward. Uh, the number of people who get driver's licenses um, at age, um, I think it's under 21, that population has been declining really since the 1970s. And it's in part because of the phone for a different reason. In the past, the automobile was your key to freedom, your literal key to freedom. You got those keys, and now you could go out and do stuff in the world. But today, you know, my almost 12-year-olds, they've got freedom already. They can talk to their friends. They can have a social life. They don't have to be stuck with their dad all the time because they've got a smartphone. So that kind of, it's already unlocking a different kind of freedom and mobility. And I think that even when you take it to the point of, oh, okay, I really do need to be able to move around in a city and I really do need to be able to get groceries Mm -hmm. and I really do need to be able to get to a job, all those things will be possible for my kids through their phone. Would you uh, call up a rideshare, sidecar or Lyft or Uber and, and put those kids in a car and send them somewhere? Uh, sidecar, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> of, Actually, not quite yet. They're only eleven and a half, uh, but uh, certainly when they're when they're older, absolutely would. Yeah, I've thought about it. Let's have our next audience question. Hi. Uh, so now you said you've been talking about this or thinking about it for ten plus years. Um, based on stuff that's floating around in the last few weeks, ten plus years, they're saying that we'll have self-driving cars. How mm-hmm. do you think the model changes mm-hmm. when? self-driving cars become a reality. Uh, another reason why I jumped in is self-driving cars. One of the reasons we're attracted to Google Ventures as an investor is self-driving cars. We think that it is a fundamental change to transportation that will occur and um, that having a community and a, a network uh, where you can get access to a ride um, plays very well to, to self-driving cars. And I would just add that, that many people in the industry are arguing that really good platforms for testing autonomous vehicles are actually shared-use fleets. And so, yeah, the idea of buying a self-driving car might be a little scary, but going to city car share or zip car or something like that, uh, which can also be a factor for EVs. People who are interested in electric vehicles, mm-hmm. maybe they don't want to buy because of range anxiety, etc. cetera, uh, but th- that could be a good place to sort of uh, prime the market for electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. Well, we have, a, we, have a, Atkinson. we have a large program going with uh, electric vehicles, and uh, currently we only have uh, 20 vehicles in our fleet. We'll double it this year. Um, but one of the interesting facts is that in the first six months that we had uh, – our, our initial 10 vehicles out in uh, our fleet, plug-ins, some of them are plug-in electric vehicles, some of them are full electric vehicles. We had over 3,000 unique individuals try those cars. That's more people who tried an electric vehicle through our fleet than were sold in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. So uh, we, we think car sharing and city car sharing in particular, we're also um, putting in charging stations, some for public use, some for uh, car share use in uh, – locations that will allow us to do it. Do you know if any of those triers went on to become buyers? Um, we suspect that we've had some short-term memberships that uh, we're looking to try out various, <laughs> various vehicles. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, we're happy, we're happy to be used that way as well. We, we've actually found in our car sharing, car sharing research mm-hmm. that uh, individuals who have a life change, for instance, they, they need to move to the, the suburbs or they have a child or something like that, they often buy a vehicle that they were commonly driving in car sharing. 
And you mentioned. Way, I, I think this is a common. Well. This whole idea of sharing and variety, it's intrinsic to the whole sharing experience. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you are one of the things that's attractive about using someone else's apartment when you're visiting is that you get to connect. It's variety. It's not the same old Holiday Inn. One of the things about car sharing is that you get to try different vehicles. One of the things about you know sidecars, you get to meet all these interesting people and different vehicles. It's part of what makes it a fun experience. It's not just, oh, okay, I'm used to it. It's the same old thing every day, every day. Yeah, when I was a member of City Car Share, I drove from those, what, cyan, the square boxy things. Yeah. I'd never buy one, but I felt cool and hip for like <laughs> driving those things around. You mentioned the suburbs. Uh, does this model translate to suburban or rural America, or is this something that's really a metropolitan area? If you, I mean, the Ford F-150 is the largest uh, best-selling truck car in America, and that gives you a sense of where a lot of the buyers and drivers are. Uh, so, Susan Shaheen, is, is this, does this move out to the suburbs? I believe it will. I, th- I think the, the stronghold for these systems will be urban areas just because of density patterns and how people are going to be gravitating more and more towards urban living. But I do think through phenomenon like peer-to-peer car sharing, dynamic ride sharing, uh, fractional ownership, which is the idea that several people co-own a vehicle, and all this connectivity that's provided through these mobile devices and applications there's really not a reason why these things can't spread to other areas. And I think this is sort of the next great challenge for the shared use space is can we move this into other locations than just these urban areas where we know they will be successful. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Yeah, hello. Um, did you do some research or benchmark on what's happening in Europe um, on the ride sharing or car sharing space, especially ride sharing? For example, you have two companies one in Germany, carpooling, they have millions of users. One in France called BlaBlaCar, three million of users. Do you, did you check a little bit on why it's so big there and what you can learn from them in the U.S.? Senior Paul or Susan Jaheen? Do you have any comments on it? Uh, I mean, I, I, in fact, I don't know if he's here. Um, the CEO of carpooling.com was here earlier. Um, they have had tremendous success. I mean, yeah. they've got uh, in, all over it's Europe. A, it's a denser population. Denser smaller, population. Public uh, transportation is, is okay. better. better. People are more connected in, in certain areas. And, Gasoline's more And expensive. they also have institutional and governmental support. And I don't mean financial support. I'm talking about regulatory uh, and and uh, policy support. Mm-hmm. And that helps tremendously in Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. a great example of, um, of regulation success. and and the sort of public framework encouraging these kinds of innovations. And it's resulted in, uh, you know, I guess I shouldn't use the number since I don't know if it was confidential, but um, carpooling, carpooling.com has, uh, uh, is doing, you know, has done millions and millions of rides. Um, uh, they are doing very, very well. And they, they're typically doing long-distance trips between cities. Right. Something similar to, to Zimride, which mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Lyft is also involved in. Mm-hmm. And that started out of, out of colleges, but uh, I saw one today for someone going to Green Build in Philadelphia from San Francisco. <laughs> um, is that something that you see is really growing? Yeah, that's right. So the company Zimride started, actually, today is our six-year anniversary of incorporation, funnily enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, started initially focused on colleges and universities, a really critical thing um, with respect to carpooling is is 
getting a critical mass, so a large enough user base. And so the original model of the company was focused around colleges and universities where you have, you know, kind of a, a dense population of people that are often going to and from the same destinations. Mm-hmm. And Lyft was sort of the natural evolution of that um, with mobile technology, the ability to do these things in real time rather than planned, you know, a week or so in advance. We have to uh, end it there. We've been talking about car sharing and ride sharing at Climate One. Our guests have been Kristen Sverchek, head of public policy at Lyft and Zimride, Susan Shaheen, co-director of the Transportation Sustainability Research Center at UC Berkeley, Sunil Paul, CEO of Sidecar, a ride sharing company, and Rick Hutchinson, CEO of City Car Share in San Francisco. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming to Climate One today.